Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. And we hit our 50th episode, everybody. What? Yay! Yay! What? So let's get right to it. Okay. So there have been four American presidents that have been assassinated in office. Well, we are getting right down to business. <laughs> say what I mean and I mean what I say. And I figure most of our listeners, maybe even a lot of our, our non-American listeners, know some things about two of those. Yeah. Uh, Ford's Theater and the Grassy Knoll and and uh, all these three named people. And, and But what about the middle guys? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. So that's who we're going to talk about. Okay. We're going to talk about Charles J. Gateau and Leon Cholgosh. Okay, let's talk about them. <laughs> Just to, to follow my, my opening thesis, Starlin, do you know anything about Charles J. Gateau or Leon Cholgosh? They got some interesting last names. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's all I got. That's it. Well, then we better jump right into some facts. So let's do this a bit chronologically, right? Okay. That means we're going to start with uh, Gateau. He was born in 1841 in Freeport, Illinois, and grew up to be, I might be hyping things up, but maybe the most colorful person we've talked about on the show yet. Really? He's a contender. Okay. I will okay. say that. So uh, as a teen, he failed the entrance exams for the University of Michigan. Uh, so he moved out to New York and joined the Oneida community in 1860. What was the Oneida community? Well, they, they were this religious commune founded by John Humphrey Noyes, and they believed that uh, Christ had returned in the year 70 AD. Okay. And it was their place to bring heaven on earth themselves. It was called uh, perfectionism. They were to perfect this earth and, oh. and be that millennial kingdom. Okay. So what they did, in accordance with these beliefs, was holding all property in common. They also held marriage in common. Oh, they were the hippies of the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. You but might in like a so. weird cult way. The well, hippie cults of the time. Noise even coined the term free love. So you're not too far off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they had a eugenics program, uh, you might say. Oh. Not hippies. Not hippies. Like they, they encouraged the, the best of their community to make the best babies, right? It wasn't like a sterilization thing, but an encouragement. You know what? While we're all swapping partners, and well, that's not even true to say. They, they discouraged the idea of partners at all. They every... You two over there are really pretty. Yeah. You should make a baby. And they'll, they'll be a very healthy young lad. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. Like, I'm sure pressure. there are a lot of people that was like, oh my, like, I know I was going to get bugged about having grandbabies, but like, come on. Everyone was subject to public criticism. And in order to make the perfect society, people had to point out your flaws so you could work on them. Such as, you're ugly, <laughs> don't make a baby. <laughs> That really sounds like what they're going for here. These were more uh, personality flaws, sins you may have committed that had to be uh, publicly uh, uh, confessed. Sleeping around, not one of them. No, that's that's encouraged, as long as everybody's cool with it. Okay. They also practiced birth control, which was a pretty big deal in the 1860s. 
Okay, so they have a lot of really conflicting ideas here. Do of, they, though? I feel like it with, like, okay, we want to make these perfect children over here. Yeah, but at the which same means time, like, only making children when you want to have children. But it doesn't seem like necessarily like when you want to. We want you to. So you're going to do that. These people are very committed to their community standards. I'm very confused by their community standards. <laughs> well, they still kind of exist in a very small way. Uh, the, the community collapsed, but in order to support themselves, they were in the silverware business. Oneida uh, uh, utensils. That, that's them. That is the remaining aspect of this com- the Oneida community. We have those. I was just going to say, isn't that what our, the silverware we uh, got for our wedding? Yes. When we upgraded from the Walmart, like, five forks for a dollar? That business they founded continued long after their religious commune uh, uh, faltered and failed. I mean, those are that's a really nice set of silverware we got. <laughs> Very reasonably priced and great quality. Mm-hmm. So while Gateau was there, he was one of around 300 members. And reportedly, he worshipped noise. Uh, said, quote, I have perfect, entire, and absolute confidence in him in all things. Uh, he tried to found a newspaper based on the faith, which failed. Now, I, I mentioned that work in the community was shared communally, right? Mm-hmm. There, there were work details and everybody traded off duties. Everybody did a little of everything according to their ability in order to keep things going. Uh, Gateau, not so much. See, he wrote letters to Noise insisting that he was sent there by God, so sh- he should have the special privilege to deny work assignments he didn't like so much. Uh-huh. Yeah, because God said... Well, Noyes considered Guiteau insane, uh, and his nickname around the community was Charles Get Out. <laughs> That's funny. They like their puns back in I the like day. I like that. That's good. Uh, I guess at- I would have gotten along with these people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at these criticism sessions, he was called an egotist, and hearing that, he was so offended he packed up and left. If being called an egotist hurts your ego so much you move, you might be an egotist. Might be. You might, might be. be. He, he also reportedly was really into the free love idea, but, like, this was a consensual community, right? Yeah. He didn't have any luck finding it. <laughs> None of the ladies were down with Charles Gateau. Aw. Well, he sounds kind of like an ass. Kind of. Kind of. The Oneida community was also notable for being far more along the, the road to uh, women's equality than anywhere outside it in America. Okay. So after he left Oneida for, for the final time, Gateau tried to sue and blackmail Noise and went shopping around in New York City for any lawyers that would help him in a crusade to, to just squash the community and wipe them off the map. Huh. Uh, obviously that failed because we have silverware. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gateau's father had some ties with the community. That's how he found them himself originally. Uh, but his dad sided with Noise and Oneida, saying that his son was possessed by the devil. <laughs> Thanks for sticking up for me, Dad. <laughs> As Gateau continued to try to make a name for himself, one of the, the uh, passions he found was theology and preaching. And so he published a uh, book called The Truth. That book was pretty much all... uh, Lies. Yeah? Well, 
You might say that, but what it definitely was is plagiarized. Oh, yeah. It, it was Noise's book, but he put his name on it. Ah. And when he traveled around to, to preach and to sell this book, uh, everywhere he went, he argued that as a representative of God, he shouldn't be charged for room and board. <laughs> and I'm sure he was laughed at in his face and sent <laughs> on his merry way. Yeah, he failed at a lot of things. After failing at uh, pretty much everything he tried, he got a law license in Chicago. Oh, that's no good. That means <laughs> I feel like in the 1800s, uh-huh. like, okay, life insurance means you're going to kill people. A law license means you're going to, like, swindle people. Well, <laughs> he used his law license to get work as a bill collector and pocketed those payments for himself. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. he did. Okay, that was right. Uh, that was right. This came out in his divorce when his wife shared her stories of what he was getting up to during their, their short marriage. Yeah. So in 1880, he was uh, bit by the, the politics bug. It, it was a presidential campaign year, very exciting. And so he uh, got on a boat from Boston to New York to meet the Republican National Committee and tell them what he was going to do to help them win the White House. Talk to God. If he's in your corner, how can you lose? <laughs> but on the way, his boat crashed into another boat, and he survived, which was one more thing that left him convinced he was here for a higher purpose, that, that God had him on Earth for something important. Mm -hmm. Nobody on the ship he was riding was injured at all. <laughs> Not a single one. Now, the, the ship they rammed did sink with great loss of life, mm -hmm. tragically. Aww. But he was on the, the good ship, you know, solid construction. <laughs> he was fine. There was no danger to him. Good ship, solid construction. <laughs> <laughs> it's very catchy. Very catchy. So that year, the Republican Party was split into factions. You had on one side of these... Dauntless and... Uh... <laughs> well, pretty close. The stalwarts. I was going to say the stalwarts. Okay. Uh, they believed in preserving the spoil system of patronage and maintaining political machines. Think back to our uh, Mayor Daly episode, right? Mm -hmm. you, you do work for the party, you get a job from the party, right? Yep. The half-breeds were the other faction. <laughs> you can guess which faction came up with the names. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So-called because they were only really half-Republican. Okay. Sure, sure. That's what you meant. And they supported civil service reform with hiring done on the basis of merit. So the 1880 Republican National Convention was held in Chicago, and the leading candidates were Ulysses S. Grant, seeking nomination for a third term uh, with support from the stalwart branch, uh, James Blaine, mayor of Maine, leader of the half-breeds, uh, John... <laughs> I, it's not nice. It doesn't sound nice to say, no, but it's true. I know. It's just it's just one of those things that you hear and you you, you can't help but react to. Uh, th there were also candidates like John Sherman and, and some others hoping to pull votes from both sides, presenting themselves as, hey, these people are going to vote forever. You need a compromise candidate. That's me, John Sherman. Mm-hmm. President Rutherford B. Hayes was declining to run for re-election. That's why the field was so wide open. Mm -hmm. 
So Sherman and, and those people further down on the ballot were entirely correct. There were 33 deadlocked ballots. Oh. Uh, for the 34th ballot, delegates from Wisconsin shifted their votes to one James Garfield in order to try to push momentum toward a compromise. Mm-hmm. Garfield immediately lodged a complaint that he shouldn't be allowed to receive votes without his consent. <laughs> and the chairman overruled him, hoping that we could finally get out of here. It's been days. Yeah. So on the 36th ballot, nearly every Blaine, Sherman, and other delegate pooled to finally reach a majority. 399 for James Garfield, 306 for Ulysses S. Grant. Uh-huh. A reporter on the scene called nominee Garfield pale as death as the result came in. <laughs> nice. He did not officially uh, uh, accept the nomination until he could send word to his wife and see if it was okay with her. I'm glad that he uh, he took that into consideration. <laughs> he really was not expecting to be nominated for president that day. Like, I gotta, I gotta make sure my wife is okay with this. She was way more into it than he was, <laughs> apparently. So to continue the theme of, of compromise, he took Chester Arthur, a stalwart stalwart, as his running mate. So Guiteau had already been sort of campaigning on Grant's behalf, or attempting to. He wrote up a pamphlet uh, uh, called, you know, Grant Against Hancock, the, the Democrat uh, nominee. And when he heard the news, he just sort of scratched out Grant's name and wrote in Garfield. Because <laughs> if it's good for one, it's just good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was all this over-the-top praise about how wonderful the man was and how he's going to save the country, and the argument that if Hancock were to win, it would spark a second civil war. This is not true. Like, there's no... Yeah. You would not find a historian anywhere who would say that the, in the case of a Hancock presidency, the, the nation would have sparked into another bloody conflict. Yeah. But Gateau was arguing that, yeah, it's way more likely than you'd think. So in New York, he was pestering uh, the Republican committee, let me give the speech. I'm going to give the speech. If I give this speech, Garfield's going to win. It's a great speech. Let me let me publish this thing. And they finally like, fine, fine. You can give the speech one time to this small group of black voters in New York City. And he's like, fine, I'm going to do it. It's going to be great. And he's going to win. He gave the speech. And yes, Garfield did win in a very close election, and Guiteau was convinced that he was the architect of that presidency. Of course he was. Of course he was. So, he's a stalwart. They, they believe in patronage. If you get someone elected, you get a job. If you single-handedly deliver the presidency, you get a real good job. Mm-hmm. So, uh, being an ambassador is pretty swanky, right? Yeah. I mean... I'd be down for it, right? And Vienna just sounds lovely. Wait, no, maybe not Vienna. Paris. Yes. Charles J. Gateau was to be ambassador to France. Yeah. He was convinced of this. It was the course, only thing that was suitable to his prodigious talents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He answered two out of three questions right in a, a, a law exam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. there, there were three questions. That was it. And he got two of them correct. <laughs> yes. It's a very short law exam. No wonder why everyone went to like did a law exam and, mm -hmm. and practiced and did their stuff. Just licenses everywhere. It was just so easy. Three questions. You're done. So he wrote letters. He visited the State Department. He hand-delivered a copy of his pamphlet to President Garfield. And he wrote on, on the cover, 
uh, Paris Consul. <laughs> like, just so we get the hint. He introduced himself to the First Lady as, quote, one of the men that made Mr. Garfield president. This dude is so full of himself, my God. Mm-hmm. This is a time in history when the president could take walk-in appointments off the street. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was eventually thrown out onto the street by Blaine, now Secretary of State, personally. Nice. During this time, he, he was penniless, walking through Washington, D.C.'s winter without a proper coat, without boots. But he was determined to get his due. Mm-hmm. But he was also reading the newspaper and seeing that Garfield was trying to reform the civil service, only deepening this split in the Republican Party. And he had appointed a fool like uh, Governor Blaine to run the State Department. Mm-hmm. Clearly a-, a moron who's not giving him his-, his job. Yeah. So the c- party was doomed. The country was doomed. There's only one thing to do. Kill him. Guiteau decided to kill the president long before he managed to actually do it. (laughs) Removing Garfield was the will of God, and, as a bonus, it would elevate Chester Arthur, a loyal stalwart, finally get things in order. Mm -hmm. So he borrowed money from a relative for a gun, and when he was gun shopping, he was sure to choose one with a handle that looked real nice for when it would be a museum piece. (laughs) Like, that shouldn't be funny. Mm Mm-hmm. But this dude's nuts. That is an important question, whether or not he is nuts. But we'll get there. He's just... Everything he does, he's so incredibly full of himself. Yes, just ask the people at Oneida. They threw him out for it. Everything. They were an 1800s free love hippie cult, and he was too out there for them. Oh my gosh. Dude. Good spoons, though. Uh, Great spoons. I love their spoons. Now, uh, a shooting wasn't his first idea. He he ran through a few options. He thought that dynamite would be, quote, too Russian. (laughs) And he was worried about, you know, collateral damage, bystanders. So that's not good. Yeah. He thought he might try to stab the president, but then he'd have to get in real close. And he knew that he was no match for James Garfield in a fight. He was a very large, powerful (laughs) man that he believed would knock him out with one blow. At least he was, uh, he acknowledged what animal would, uh, the smallest animal that would kill him in a fight and the largest he could take. Yeah. Not a human, apparently. Apparently not. Not not a a beefy boy like President Garfield. It's all that lasagna. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when we're talking about names and what they mean, every time you say his name, I just think about waiting for Godot. Yeah. I'm like, I guess this is why they're still waiting for him. Because he was hung by the neck until dead. Spoilers. (laughs) Yep. But yes, he he eventually settled on on shooting him with a pistol that seemed the American way to do it. Of course. Every... That is, like, way too realistic, honestly. That's something he honestly said. And to his credit, the the one presidential assassin that came before him shot Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Every successful and unsuccessful attempt after him shot the president. Or shot at the president. You know, and we're America and guns. I'm just saying, no one's ever tried to poison the president of the United States of America. Not that we know of. It could have been happening. It just, like, you know, it could have been one of those things where they were trying to, like, slowly poison. Mm -hmm. But they just never got a chance to finish. Could be, could be. Yeah. So he had some some false starts, some failed attempts. He was basically stalking the president around D.C., 
One time he found him on the way to church, but was afraid of hitting other parishioners in the crowd, so he backed off. Oh, well, that's very nice of him. Uh, One time he saw him at a train station and felt he had the opportunity until he noticed Mrs. Garfield uh, was was looking ill. She was just getting over a sickness, and he didn't want to upset her and and cause a relapse. (laughs) (laughs) He's the kindest assassin. So kind! Like the time he backed off when he had another clear shot because he didn't want to shoot President Garfield in front of his own son. So freaking kind! So we eventually get to July 2nd, 1881. Mm-hmm. In a, a train station in Washington, D.C., he saw his opportunity and shot the president twice, then turned himself into the police saying, I am a stalwart of the stalwarts. Arthur is president now. Huh. Now, as an odd coincidence, Robert Todd Lincoln happened to be in the crowd. Oh. He was present for the first and second presidential assassinations. Did he stop going outside ever again? He did not. He he kept making appearances, traveling. I, so I guess he got through it. I mean, if I was him, I'd be like, you know what? If I was any president, I would not want him around. <laughs> Uh, The president's words upon being shot were, thank you, doctor, but I am a dead man. That's not true, though. He survived for quite some time. He did not die until mid-September. Ah. Eleven weeks he held on. It is debated whether he would have survived if his doctors had just left him alone. Did they try to bleed him? No, no, but their methods certainly didn't help, regardless. Uh, In the first day alone, over 15 doctors fished around for the bullet with unsterilized tools and unwashed hands. Oh, great. Yeah, you are a dead man now. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell used an early metal detector to search for the bullet. He didn't find it either. He's a whole nother person. He is. (laughs) Interest. (laughs) He maintained that if he had been allowed to search both sides of the president's body, he would have found it. He was only allowed to search the right. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I honestly don't know. My, my metal detector can only do one side of the body at a time. It was a very early rudimentary metal detector. He might be onto something. That is true. It's just, it's, you know, a body's not that big and it's just kind of funny, like. James Garfield's body was. (laughs) Well, yeah, but... He could knock out a man with one blow, clearly. I'm just imagining, like, what if that technology was the same and, like, the people who go out onto beaches with Mm -hmm. their metal detector? (laughs) We were... Yeah. It would take them so long, because it can only search, like, an inch at a time. Uh, They they tried to uh, treat... Garfield's symptoms with morphine, and when and when that made him vomit, they tried with champagne. Oh, yeah, yeah, champagne. Uh, he lost over 100 pounds uh, over these 11 weeks on a diet of eggs, bullion, milk, whiskey, and opium. Uh-huh, uh-huh. In order to keep his strength up, they, they tried using nutrient enemas. They, they tried to feed him rectally. Uh- if you're wondering, that is not how nutrients are absorbed into the body. Well, that, 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 and, like, the whole idea of, like, an enema is that then it just comes back out. Only the bad stuff. The body should take the good stuff. Bodies are but smart. But it's, it's, it's not in there long enough. Even if that's where, like, it's not in there long enough for anything to happen. <laughs> 1880s medicine, dear. 
I'm trying to put my brain in their brains and think, why would you still think this was a good idea? <laughs> really not a great idea. Why would you think it was? So uh, once that, that day in September, September 19th came, and Garfield had died in his summer cottage in New Jersey, Guiteau was charged with murder, with the formal indictment coming one month later. Now, he continually tried to present his own defense at his trial. Uh, one of the reasons, one of many reasons, his lawyers did not like him very much. Yeah, lawyers usually don't like when you do that. Uh, his defenses included, because Garfield died in New Jersey, this court did not have jurisdiction. Huh. Uh, quote, the doctors killed Garfield. I just shot him. You know. You know. That is like the one argument he may have there. I just attempted to kill him. I didn't actually kill him. Yeah, it was those dirty hands. Yeah. Guiteau claimed that he was acting according to God's will, serving a higher law than the state's. And you, you can't try God for murder. He's obviously right. He's yeah. God. Yeah. He did write letters to now President Chester Arthur for a pardon as a favor. You know, I, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You're... I got you to be president. Exactly. He he even mentioned uh, the, the change from an $8,000 a year salary as vice president to 40000 as president. That's a big difference. Yeah, you owe me, bud. Come on, do me a solid. His behavior in the courtroom was a pretty big topic of contention. Uh, newspapers were full of his antics day by day. Uh, he presented arguments in the form of epic poems. Nice. Uh, he cursed out the judge, the witnesses, his lawyers. Uh, sometimes he would just pass notes to strangers in the crowd. And when the, the notes would be read, because the judge would be like, what, what is this? What are you doing? He was asking them for advice on what he should do next. He should have got that third question right in law, <laughs> you know, for his test. He's only two thirds of a lawyer. <laughs> it would have helped a lot. On the stand, he admitted very accurately, I would guess, that killing the president would increase sales of his autobiography. Uh-huh. This autobiography that he, he dictated and was published while he was in prison, uh, it ended with a personal ad for a new wife. He was looking for a nice Christian lady from a wealthy family, 30 years old or younger. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not so much to ask for the guy that saved the country. Oh, of course not. Outside the trial, he, he was a busy guy. He was planning a lecture tour after his release, uh, which would then lead to his own presidential run in the 1884 election. Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, what his lawyers were trying to do, uh, the defense they were going for, they were trying to redefine the insanity defense. Uh-huh. The precedent at the time was the Monoton Rule. Uh, any defendant that understood their act was lawful and had consequences was not legally insane and therefore completely legally culpable for their actions. Uh -huh. All the prosecution had to do uh, under that rule was prove that Guiteau knew that shooting the president may have killed him and that killing the president is against the law. Uh -huh. So th it was insurmountable. He clearly knew that. He admitted it as much. He just did not care yeah. and, <laughs> and thought it was for the greater good regardless. Yes. The prosecution argued therefore, that he was perfectly sane. He shot someone because he didn't like him, like any common murderer. Yeah. Uh, his behavior in court was just this, this act, this madman act to try to weasel out of it, which is really the actions of a very, very sane man, if you think about it. Ha ha ha. Yeah. 
a, a lot of his outbursts uh, and his, his strings of profanity came when this topic was brought up, because any time his lawyers would try to make a case that he was insane, he would take that as a personal insult and, and go off on a tirade, how dare you, I'm Charles J. Gateau, I'm not crazy, mm-hmm. I'm the best. I'm so awesome at everything. Uh, he made his own closing statement in the form of a poem. Of course. Uh, he was found guilty in 1882, and as soon as that was read, he called the jury consummate jackasses <laughs> and was hung in July. Awaiting execution, he published a six-page poem in the newspaper describing his reasons for shooting Garfield, as if he hadn't been saying it under oath in public. Just one last chance, just so we're clear. And this is an excerpt of that poem. You murdered Garfield and you must die. T'was God's will, not mine, that he should die. 38 cases in the Bible can be found where the Almighty has directed the removal of rulers. Who were going wrong, I executed the divine command and Garfield did remove to save my party and my country. It goes on like that a lot. That was just somewhere from the middle. (laughs) He's not a great poet, I'd say. No, he's really not. Really not. When it came time for him to, to be hung from the gallows, he originally planned to be hung only in his underwear in order to draw parallels to Christ. But was convinced that it would only make him look like a, a lunatic. Yeah. And that would muddle his message. Yeah. Uh, his last words were the recitation of yet another poem <laughs> he wrote for the occasion, either that morning or, or the night immediately before. Uh, it's called, I Am Going to the Lordy. <laughs> before he read the poem, he explained the poem that it was meant to be uh, something recited by, by children. It was meant to be part of like Sunday schools. Oh, yeah. So this is the final stanza of this poem, therefore, his last words. I wonder what I will see when I get to the Lordy. I expect to see most glorious things beyond all earthly conception when I am with the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah, glory, hallelujah, I am with the Lord. It's it's very repetitive. That is the least repetitive part. Lordy. Mm-hmm. I'm upset about the last line being, I'm with the Lord and not I'm with the Lordy. Well, that's when you're like resolved into maturity. He's a brilliant poet, it turns out. I've I've never, like... Like, people say Lordy. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen, like, it actually written and someone <laughs> using it in something. In, in that trial, while arguing for the court to recognize a, a lack of culpability due to his mental state, you know, that seems like the more progressive position mm-hmm. to, to our modern eyes. But, of course, there's always a... a, a What's the opposite of a silver lining? I don't know, the dark cloud itself Yeah. when you're talking about medical opinion of this era. Yeah. So the attitudes even even the supporters of this position were taking on the, the nature and cause of insanity are really not square with, with uh, what, what medical science yeah. and just being generally nice to people today would say. Yeah. For instance, his autopsy revealed his foreskin had never retreated which to some seemed a clear cause of insanity. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- this debate 
sparked in the court and beyond had a lot of very important questions. Was insanity heritable? Did it require hallucinations? Uh, is it a congenital malformation of the brain or cerebral lesions? Essentially, what is legitimate illness? Can rational people have a mental illness and still be rational? And if so, what does that mean for criminal responsibility? Mm -hmm. They did not answer any of these questions. Uh, Minotan was was still on the books as as the rule to use, but it opened discourse at the very least. Yeah. And in order to answer that question, in, in order to uh, further this debate, his brain was removed for study, and a large portion of it is in the collection of Philadelphia's Mutter Museum. Oh, so we probably saw it. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah. <laughs> Mutter Museum's great. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry that you almost fainted. And it had nothing to do with the brain in a jar. No, it didn't. The rest of his body, the, the parts that weren't uh, put uh, under scientific study, were, was boiled in chemicals so it wouldn't be desecrated by grave robbers. Huh. And from where I'm sitting, that sounds pretty desecrated to me. Like, Yeah. <laughs> sounds like you just wanted to beat him to it. Yeah, maybe. So that, that uh, DC railroad station did not last uh, through time. It was demolished. That patch of land is now part of the site for the National Gallery of Art, mm. uh, the, the West Building, I believe. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. and, and one fact I didn't mention earlier, uh, one, one of the many businesses he failed at, Charles Gateau, mm -hmm. he was an 1800s insurance salesman. <gasps> How many other people did he kill? And we just don't know. <laughs> He's probably a serial killer. I don't know. I mean, the serial killers are the ones buying insurance. He's he's an accessory to okay, murder. He, yes, an accessory. He was selling it. He knew of murderers. <laughs> he's like, oh, you're planning to kill people here? Buy some insurance on them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. At least make it worth your while. Yeah. And then cut him in on half because, like, the bill collection business isn't paying the bills no. ironically so with that we're going to take a break and be back with our second assassin of the day oh man charlie said hell if i am guilty then god is as well but god was acquitted and charlie committed until he should hang still he sang but on the bright side Get off your backside, shine those shoes. This is your golden opportunity. You are lightning and your news. Wait till you see tomorrow. Tomorrow you won't be ignored. You could be pardoned, you could be president. Look on the right side. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. So let's switch gears entirely. Okay. Talk about someone who probably couldn't be less like Charles J. Gateau. And still have killed the president. Okay. Leon Cholgosh, he killed President McKinley. Okay. It's easy to forget President William McKinley and that he was shot dead in 1901. Yeah. Yeah. He was born in Alpena, Michigan in oh. 1873. And uh, Cholgosh started working in factories as a teenager. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, the Panic of 1893 made that work pretty hard to find, though. That, that was an economic depression caused by a run on U.S. gold, which caused a crash in wheat prices, which caused a run on the banks, and therefore a credit crunch, 
and a stock crash. And what all this really means is a 43% unemployment rate in the state of Michigan. Yeah. The, that's the way the dominoes fell, and they fell right onto Leon Cholgosh. Yeah. So the, the people's unrest, right? This, this backlash with everybody out of work, unhappy. This led to the election of President William McKinley in 1896, promising prosperity and, and protective tariffs, mm-hmm. right, to, to bring America back. Uh, Cholgosh got involved in, in working men's clubs, in, in socialist organizations, and he got more and more radicalized, uh, becoming an avowed anarchist. Uh-huh. In 1900, uh, Italy's King Umberto I was assassinated by Gaetano Bresci, an Italian anarchist who said he did it for the sake of the common man. Cholgosh always read the newspaper always keeping up on what's going on Uh in the world, was inspired. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So he was moving around all the time, trying to find work, trying to stay with family. Anywhere there was sort of a a Polish-American enclave, Mm -hmm. he might have tried it for at least a little while. And in 1901, uh, that meant moving to Ohio to work on a farm his father had had just gotten. Uh Uh-huh. And there, he he visited Cleveland in May and heard Emma Goldman give a speech. Emma Goldman was an anarchist activist herself and a writer. Uh, She organized strikes. She once tried to assassinate an industrialist. Uh, She distributed birth control. She supported the anarchists later in the Spanish Civil War. She denounced the Soviet Union in 1921 after supporting them up until then. That's... Uh, when they started cracking down on on uh, minority voices within, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, she spoke on pretty much every issue of the day: prisons, crime, suffrage, and encouraged workers to quote demonstrate before the palaces of the rich, demand work. If they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take bread. Yeah, that's Emma Goldman, and she made a big impression on Cholgosh. It wasn't until he heard her speak that he said, that's me. That's what I am. You're an anarchist. I'm an anarchist. I'm, I, I want to do some anarchy. Mm-hmm. And in order to hit the ground running, he came up to her after the speech and asked for what books he should read to, to get up to speed on this anarchy stuff. He, yeah. he wanted to have that foundation. Uh, and yeah, he, she wrote out some recommendations for him to, to get started. Later that summer, he traveled to Chicago to visit the house where she was living uh-huh. and to tell her that Cleveland's anarchists kind of sucked. They, they just weren't doing it for him. He wanted to, to meet her friends, some real anarchists, get into where the, some action is. And hey, if any of you are planning to do any acts of violence, I am totally down. Yeah. So her circle was pretty certain he was a spy. I mean... That much enthusiasm? Yeah. Yeah. Hello, stranger. Are any of your friends trying to bomb anything? I sure would love to meet them. (laughs) I'd love to know about it all. All the details. Please tell me everything. Right? So they they sent out a warning to their friends. Like, there's this dude. He followed us from Cleveland. And he's shady as heck. What's going to be like, did did he say like, hey, I'm coming? Was he invited? No, he just showed up at her house. Right, right. It, it's also where they, they published uh, the Free Society, the, the nation's most popular English language 
anarchist and communist newspaper. Uh, so in the free society, there was a more general warning about Cholgash. Attention. The attention of the comrades is called to another spy. <laughs> he is well-dressed, of medium height, rather narrow shoulders, blonde, and about 25 years of age. Up to the present, he has made his appearance in Chicago and Cleveland. In the former place, he remained but a short time. While in Cleveland, he disappeared when the comrades had confirmed themselves of his identity and were on the point of exposing him. His demeanor is of the usual sort, pretending to be greatly interested in the cause, asking for names, or soliciting aid for acts of contemplated violence. If this same individual makes his appearance elsewhere, the comrades are warned in advance and can act accordingly. <laughs> so yeah, he's a suspicious character, and like, anarchists, they, they gotta cover their back. They know spies are coming for them. Yeah. He fit the profile. Yeah. Meanwhile, preparations were underway for the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. Ah. The 1901 World's yeah. Fair. Yeah. This fair had some pretty familiar exhibits, like foreign villages and the baby incubators. Yep. Uh, the electricity that, that illuminated the whole fair was taken from a, a hydroelectric plant in the Niagara River, which was very exciting. That is cool. It was all elegantly designed with this symmetry of scale providing balance, but every main building was decorated in its own style very lavishly uh, with its own color palette, but in a way that, that uh, complemented one another for a harmonious whole. Mm -hmm. Like pictures, though they're faded and don't have the whole color, are just gorgeous. Yeah. Really, really ornate plaster buildings. Uh, that, of course, nearly all were, were temporary. That's just the way it was done. You know, the drill. <laughs> yep, yep. Talked about that a few times. Yeah. I talked a little bit about this fair in another episode, didn't I? Because this is where he's going to shoot him here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in my last, the St. Louis fair, mm -hmm. I talked about the one invention that was supposed to be, it was supposed to be debuted here, I think. Was it the x-ray? Yeah, the x-ray was, was like... that what it was? The x-ray was there and, and very primitive, yes. Yes, yes, like the the first thing, but it like completely got overshadowed because of the assassination. Um, so then like it, at St. Louis, it was like re-shown like shown for the first time, mm -hmm. even though it had been around for a while and been developed. <laughs> but yeah. 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 There you go. So Leon Cholgosh had moved to Buffalo to look for work in the summer of 1901. President McKinley, as president, uh, just kicking off his second term, scheduled an address at the exposition on September 5th and met his constituents in basically a, a receiving line, just a big reception, uh, on September 6th in the Temple of Music. Mm -hmm. uh, Cholgosh decided to kill the president on or around the 31st of August. He moved from the suburb where he was boarding to a hotel in, in Buffalo proper, really just a room above a saloon, and bought a gun on the morning of the 5th for $4.50 on Main Street. Like you do. Like you do. Like you do. So after uh, planning to assassinate the president on the 5th and, and not getting a chance, not getting close, uh, he, he showed up again on the 6th. And waited in line with everybody else trying to, to shake President McKinley's hand. Mm -hmm. uh, McKinley apparently was a pro at shaking hands. He, he had his technique down. He could uh, greet 50 people a minute. 
Yeah. <laughs> so after waiting patiently, it was Cholgosh's turn. He had the gun in his right hand covered by a handkerchief. Uh-huh. People with handkerchiefs in their hands weren't too uh, suspicious. It was a very hot day. A lot of people were dabbing their brows. Yeah. Uh, some people interviewed later assumed the way it was draped, maybe he was hiding a wound or some disfigurement. They didn't think twice. Until the president saw the handkerchief, so he reached out to shake with his left. Uh, Cholgosh slapped the president's left with his left and uh, put the gun up to him with his right hand and fired twice. One ricocheted off a button. <laughs> The other caused a deep wound Aww. in his abdomen. Uh, James Parker, a waiter who, who was also waiting in line, uh, wrenched Cholgosh to the ground before he could fire a third shot. Uh, police, the president's security, some uniformed artillerymen uh, all dove on Cholgosh, beating him. Uh, McKinley told the police, go easy on him, boys. <laughs> He was very genial through the whole episode. Very, very polite. Uh, exposition detectives rushed him out in a van as quickly as they could while the crowd was shouting to, to lynch him on the spot. Uh-huh. You know who else was in the crowd that day? Robert Todd Lincoln. Oh, man. Present for the first, second, and third presidential assassinations. Needs to stop going places. If you told me he was in Dallas 1963, I would not be surprised. I just think, wow, he must have ate well and exercised. He's like an observer. <laughs> He's an observer from Fringe. It's real. At the Buffalo police station, he, he gave the alias Fred Neiman, uh, which is German for like no man. Huh? Uh. He's just Fred nobody. Uh, and immediately confessed, quote, I killed President McKinley because I'd done my duty. I didn't believe one man should have so much service and another man should have none. Huh. Uh, McKinley had not yet died from the wound by the time that Cholgosh admitted to killing him. Yeah. So apparently the news hadn't gotten. He just assumed that his shot was fatal. Yeah. Cholgosh was a quiet, reserved prisoner. He didn't shave or wash, or change clothes for days. Oh, he was very smelly. Okay. In part because the police never provided anything for him to change into. They wanted him to be very smelly. Okay. They did not care what happened to, to this guy. Just let him rot in the, the town jail cell uh, until they have to do something with him. Uh-huh. A news article on the 11th, so less than a week later, spent a lot of time talking about the beard he had grown in this short stay. Yeah. <laughs> and also about how, yeah, he's still wearing the shirt stained with his own blood and maybe a little of the president's? We're not sure. Not entirely sure. On September 14th, McKinley did die. And Cholgosh was then moved to the county penitentiary and charged with his murder. Uh, though electric power was, again, the pride of the exposition, it was mostly just on the outside of buildings. <laughs> Uh-huh. So when it came time to try to find this this bullet and try to sew up the wound, uh, that was illuminated with afternoon sunlight that uh, other doctors were, were shining in through mirrors from the outside. Oh, goodness. In, into the operating room. McKinley's eventual death from infection and gangrene caused by improper procedure in cleaning and suturing the wound. 
the the specific cause uh, is something that is pretty tricky to to treat today and would have been impossible for them to treat at the time. Yeah. Uh, The autopsy failed to find the bullet itself. Oh. And and yes, the x-ray was present at the 1901 World's Fair, but it it was not used here either. Well, no. No. Like, it was, like, really new at that fair. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was not, like, in use. While he was recovering, or attempting to recover in the days after, Thomas Edison sent another machine to help find it. I can't remember if it was an x-ray or a a more advanced metal detector. Uh But apparently it was missing a part, and so they couldn't put it together right to use it. That puts a damper on things there. It sure does. So this trial moved real quick. I can imagine. But the investigation lingered a bit. The question was, did he act alone? There was a lot of paranoia about the the anarchist threat, these these radicals in our midst, right? Mm-hmm. So anarchists were attacked in the streets. Uh, one anarchist was nearly hung up uh, and, and killed in Philadelphia. Anti-anarchist laws were passed and... They stayed on the books long enough to silence those who opposed the First World War. Yeah, they're not they're not going to get rid of those things when a war is coming. Right. The Immigration Act of 1903 banned anarchists from entering the United States, along with other categories like people with epilepsy or beggars. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. In his interrogations... Uh, Cholgash mentioned his admiration for Emma Goldman, how her words inspired something within him, you know, moved him to to action, uh, which led to her being investigated for a conspiracy. Of course. Uh, Her family was arrested in order to make her turn herself in, which she did. Uh, Cholgash insisted she was not involved. Like, I, I just liked the things she said. She did not plan this. We never really spoke much. And she told the story of how she and her friends thought he was an untrustworthy weirdo and they didn't spend any real time together. Yeah. But she, unlike other anarchists, never denounced his actions. She she was on the record calling him a, a sensitive soul. Mm. On the other hand, she also volunteered to uh, pay for any treatment or or convalescence the, the dying president needed. Oh. Uh, because he's just a man. Yeah. Yeah. He, he shouldn't be president. There shouldn't be presidents. If he's going to die, might as well die comfortably. I, I don't mind that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All anarchists arrested on this sp- suspicion of conspiracy were eventually released without charge after, you know, a few weeks of obviously not conspiring. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, one reason the trial was so fast is that Cholgosh did not want one. Oh. Uh, when it came time to enter his plea, he tried to plead guilty, but the judge entered a not guilty plea anyway. Uh, He refused to speak with his lawyers or any of the psychiatrists sent to evaluate his mental fitness for trial. The defense didn't put up much of an argument at all. In their closing statement, they argued for insanity, but they called no witnesses during the trial, not even Cholgosh himself. He did not (laughs) say a single word during the entire trial. Again, the perfect opposite of Charles Guiteau. Yeah. The judge once asked him if he wanted to, to make a statement, and he shook his head. He didn't even say no. <laughs> so 
McKinley died on the 14th, right? Yeah. Cholgosh was indicted on the 16th. The trial began on the 23rd, with a guilty verdict given on the 24th, and the death penalty given on the 26th. That moved along very fast. A well-oiled machine. Uh, Cholgosh was executed in the electric chair on October 29th, 1901, 45 days after the shooting. It was very quick. His brain was also autopsied. It was given to a Dr. Spitzka. Now, his father, the elder Dr. Spitzka, uh-huh. testified in Guiteau's trial that <laughs> Guiteau was indeed insane and that the old test should be replaced. Uh-huh. Uh, Cholgosh's casket was filled with acid before he was buried on prison grounds. Uh-huh. His final words were, I killed the president because he was the enemy of the good people, the good working people. I am not sorry for my crime. I am sorry I could not see my father. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> some, some, some father issues there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, again, those fairgrounds were demolished. The Mm -hmm. the buildings were meant to be temporary, after all. And that land is now mostly residential neighborhoods. Oh. The site of the assassination is marked by a plaque on a rock in the street. In the street? It's one of those streets that has a narrow bit of grass as a median. Oh, okay. So it's it's like a, a small parkway. Yeah. That that is where the rock is. It it is in the, okay. the bit of park in the park. That makes more sense. I was like, man, that's dangerous. <laughs> I don't know if there's a plaque marking like the exact spot inside what is now you know the, the National Portrait Gallery. They they should do what they have for Fort Dearborn in the uh, up by the river where it's like in the concrete. They have yeah, like the yeah. plates. <laughs> That, that, like, mark where the building stood, which is really cool. It is cool, yeah. They should do that. So, Darlin, with with two dead presidents and two very, very different assassins, uh-huh. what have you learned? A lot. <laughs> so so a lot of these of facts. This. A lot of these facts are new to you. But the only thing I knew, shot at fair x-ray machine. <laughs> yeah connection thing i suppose i i should mention that uh the assassination of william mckinley brought us president theodore roosevelt yes who survived his own assassination attempt when he wasn't president yes i've also learned that uh lincoln there is man he's got some bad luck about being around places robert todd yeah you might think him the unluckiest lincoln but then you remember his dad and also his mom. And Did the poor dude have any friends? Because if I was his friend, I'd be like, dude, uh-uh. No. No, like, we stay can, away. We can be pen pals. Write me letters. <laughs> Don't come near me. It's a darkly interesting class of person, the presidential assassin. Yes. They, the- they have nothing to do with each other. But at the same time, they have everything to do with each yeah. other. Talk about polar opposite, like... People. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't have many jokes about this dude. <laughs> he's just he's just kind of a sad guy. He was, he was desperate and believed that great actions could could change history from, from common men. And so he killed the president. Yeah. But other than killing a dude, did it what do he, anything? He did. In the end, he did nothing. <laughs> a big lesson there. Mm-hmm. I mean... 
of all the presidential assassins, he probably had the biggest effect in a weird way, just because no one expected President Theodore Roosevelt to be a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's not what he was going for. No. He was, he was going was... for an absence of presidents. I'm sorry, dude. You can't, you can't just kill one president. To have an absence of presidents forever. Yeah, I mean, any, Not- anybody who's trying to be an assassin for policy reasons mm-hmm. is going to be disappointed because the president surrounds themselves with people who agree with them. That's, yes. That's what the government is. Yes. <laughs> at, at least the executive branch. Yes. And, and I'm not saying you have to shoot a lot of people. I'm, I'm no, saying... No, but it's... You need a mass demonstration. Emma Goldman had it right. Mm-hmm. You know, mass demonstration, direct action, creating the change that you want to come from the government, just make it in your community the best you can. Yeah. Not buying a, a gun for, for four fifty on Main Street and waiting in line. It's not going to do anything. <laughs> didn't, didn't do anything. In the long run. Like, not, it's not, yeah. His I mean, outcome, his goal is not going to happen. If we believe Guiteau's goal was to become a... a an unforgettable part of history, he he might have made it. K- kind of? <laughs> Except, like, no one, like, thinks of him. It's true. As he's not, he's he, not, he's like the, I guess maybe the third yeah. or fourth assassination person you go towards for presidents. He's number three in a two-horse race. Yeah. It, it's, it's all Booth and Oswald. <laughs> yeah. So, like, kind of, but, but I feel like he'd be kind of disappointed. He would, yeah. He would love that his brain is on display in a museum. He would love that. Yeah. He would hate how many people are like, oh, I never heard of that guy. That's interesting. As, as they walk onto the next brain. Throwing forks <laughs> and spoons at everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I guess I should peel back the curtain and say that this uh, episode is inspired by the musical Assassins. Yeah. Music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. Uh, that that song you heard in the mid-break is the, the ballad of Gateau from that show. Mm-hmm. And you might be able to guess the song you're about to hear in a minute. Uh, ah. But it deals with a lot of these themes that, like, if you look at the successful and unsuccessful uh, assassinations, there's very little that unites them, except for the glaringly obvious fact yeah. of, of their actions. Of, of assassination. So there has to be something, but what is it? And so it, it gets into that, and there's black humor, and it's it's great. It's great. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see it performed. I really like this show. Yeah. It's, it's not one I've ever seen, and I've heard very little from, actually. You should listen. Which is a shame, I know. Yeah. I mean... It's it's Sondheim, like. I mean, we we how? mentioned the Observer from Fringe and Michael right? Cerveris won a Tony <laughs> for playing Booth <laughs> in, in the 04 revival. And all everything's connected. We are at the point where every episode is connected to something, and something I say is connected to something else. Maybe that's the big lesson from today. Everything's connected. Whoa. Whoa. Which we first said in episode four, tuberculosis and fashion. <laughs> so that, we're going to take a quick break and be back with your letters. Oh. 
wrapped him a handkerchief around his gun Said nothing wrong about what I'd done Some men have everything and some have none That's by design The idea wasn't mine alone but mine And that's the sign In the USA you can have your say You can set your goals and seize the day You've been given the freedom to work your way To the head of the line Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Uh, so we've got some lovely letters from folks. We do. Why don't we read them? Okay. Uh, we got a letter from Kevin and his lovely family. And Kevin is a friend of a friend of ours who we met at a wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Kevin yeah. and family. I feel, like, I feel How- like Kevin and family are one of the first, like, I feel like us just talking about our podcast, winning people yeah. over type thing. <laughs> like, come listen. And congratulations on the new member of your family yeah. coming soon. They gave us a show suggestion that I'm going to be keeping secret because we might do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, their favorite Australian is Arvid's Blumenthal's, who became Crocodile Harry, the original uh, inspiration for Crocodile Dundee. I came from uh, Dundaga, Latvia, a, a small Baltic state. So there you go. Yeah. Crocodile Dundee is not 100% Australian. No. Kevin's favorite assassin is Ehud from the Book of Judges. Uh, this is a great Bible study that you can use to gross out your friends. Judges uh, 3, verses 12 through 30. Uh, he snuck a sword in because he was left-handed. Uh, so so uh, the guards didn't check where a left-handed person would keep their sword. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he, he stabbed the king, uh, King Elgon, uh, who was so fat that it took the sword all the way up to the hilt. And then his, his big belly absorbed the hilt. Uh-huh. Uh, and here's a quote from the Bible, so you know it's real. <laughs> and his bowels discharged... Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed over it. Uh, the, the guards then assumed that the king was relieving himself publicly, I guess. Maybe that's not so unusual for, for that king. Uh, and waited to the point of embarrassment before coming to his chambers to find the king dead. Bible time, folks. Oh, man. <laughs> so thanks, Kevin. That's a story. Uh, Lord Smaff, uh, sent us an email thanking us for, uh, helping them develop an interest in theme park history. <laughs> uh, they, they weren't ever really into theme parks as a kid, um, uh, cause there weren't really any around and roller coasters weren't really mm-hmm, a big mm-hmm. thing, but apparently we, we have sparked an interest and led to a slippery slope of YouTube videos yeah. about uh, Action Park and extraterrestrial alien encounters. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're going to Denmark, which has uh, some of the oldest operating amusement parks in the world. Ooh. And that'd be really cool if you get go. The thing about amusement park history is that people who care about these places care about them in such granular ways, right? Yeah. They, they love documenting these things and telling these stories and retelling them. Yeah. Like, there are so many YouTube videos about extraterrestrial alien encounter. Yeah. Uh, you know? Or Superstar Limo, just because it's a ride that only lasted, 
like a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting. Like every every little thing is documented, exact, which is pretty exactly, yeah. which is fun to go back and look at and see and see how things have changed, which makes it a fun subject. And yeah, it, it reminds me of the thing I said in our Magic Kingdom episode mm-hmm. about that being such a powerful brand of nostalgia. Yeah. The thing you did as a kid and the thing you did when your kid was very little. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Lord Smash. Thanks. Uh, Ian has another favorite assassin, Golgo13, uh, the protagonist of a manga series of the same name by Saito Takao. Uh, he's a globe-trotting professional assassin, sometimes under the alias Duke Togo, who works for no government, and his background, motivations, and, and his true identity are all unknown. In fact, many of the, the small pieces of history we get are contradictory. It is the oldest uh, manga series still running, uh, going from October 1968 to present, with Saito still at the helm at the age of 81. Many of our pop culture assassins have uh, clear and direct influence from uh, Agent 47 in the video game realm to James Bond himself. Uh, In fact, when Bond got his own manga adaptation, Saito was the guy that drew it. Yeah. So thanks, Ian. Yeah. Robert writes in for the first time uh, and has been listening for a long time and has had uh, right into history honeys to answer a prompt on their to-do list. (laughs) Well, you done did it. But wanted to wait until they were caught up, Uh which they are, um, and was very inspired by other people who did the answer every prompt emails. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Robert has given us permission to not read all of them. Pick and choose. I did read them all. I just yes. picked some, though. Yes. So we're going to go with uh, number five, favorite musicals. Uh, going to go with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I can't believe we just did an episode on TV musicals for Sex Archie. Yeah. And didn't mention that pretty much every week there's a musical on TV now. At least yeah. when Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is in season. Yeah. <laughs> Our fault. Sorry. Uh, number 10, Local Oddities. Um Robert is from Germany, and they have the uh, Canal Brook Magburg. Sure, we're going to go with that. Uh, the longest canal bridge in Europe. Congratulations. I'm glad you can get from one place to another. Yes. Uh, number 17, a positive 2016 history. Went to Japan for the first time. Yay. That is very cool. Uh, number 22, favorite puppet, Bert. Uh, Bert uh, only ever wanted peace and quiet to read a good book, and that is a man after Robert's own heart. There's nothing wrong with being friends with a pigeon or two. No. No. Uh, Favorite summer event? All the street food festivals. All of them. (laughs) Number 40, animal fact. Every dog is the best dog? That's just science right there. You know how I know? Huh. Because we have the best dog. We have the best dog. (laughs) Uh, number 44, Activist. Robert says after our recent episode that included uh, Martin Luther King, he feels that he, he desperately needs to learn more about him mm-hmm. uh, and that ha- he's found that uh, everything he's learned about race relations in the U.S. is bewildering and heartbreaking and infuriating um, and not fun to learn about, but really important. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess we're going to do our part every once in a while. Yeah. Because that can be true of a whole lot of topics in the world. 
Uh, number 45, Serial Killer, the Trinity Killer from Dexter, because John Lithgow. Didn't he win an award for that? He was at least, like, nominated for an Emmy for that, I think. I don't know. <laughs> He's John Lithgow. He's great. Uh, number 49, live-action Disney movie, Robert Asquith, touch, Touchstone Pictures counts. I say yes. Sure. Gone in 60 seconds. All right. Uh, number 50, Caught Up. Assassin, gonna go with Yohina Mora, the Crying Freeman. Uh, Which is another uh, manga, another yeah. Japanese character. So, Robert, congratulations. You did it. You answered all of them. And we're so glad to have you. Uh, one uh, fan cat uh, wrote in with uh, answering the current prompt of favorite assassin. Uh, and if we're going with real assassins, it would be Brutus. Yeah, kicking it off strong. If we're going fictional, it would be Ezio Auditore from Assassin's Creed 2, followed by Agent 47 of the Hitman games. Uh, favorite Australian would be Dale Parker Anderson, uh, former emperor of the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. To protest Australia's refusal to recognize same-sex marriage, uh, he and some other gay right activists seceded from Australia in June 2004 and established their own monarchy on the previously uninhabited Coral Sea Islands. Uh, they declared war on Australia later that year, and though Australia never recognized them as a sovereign nation, well, no, they wouldn't, would they? <laughs> it's kind of a, yeah, it's yeah. kind of a thing. Uh, but in November of last year, 2017. Uh, when Australia officially recognized same-sex marriage, the kingdom dissolved. Uh, <laughs> during its existence, they had a law making uh, all homosexual men and women automatically eligible for citizenship. Uh, and it also had uh, a thriving tourism industry. And its <laughs> national anthem was, I am what I am from Lacage. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. Uh, and one fake cat apparently saw us at C2E2. Yeah, at least saw our, our noggins. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry you didn't say hello. We probably weren't really rushing we off probably anywhere. probably weren't as busy as we looked. But, but I hope you had a great yeah. time at the show. Uh, and as for your question of uh, what is our dog's Instagram. <laughs> uh, it's true. I used to link it in the show notes yeah. when it was new, but I stopped. You, sh you should go back to that. I guess so. Uh, Moki's Instagram is... Moki underscore the dog. So M-O-K-E-Y underscore T-H-E-D-O-G. Yep. Yep. Uh, so you should definitely pass it on. People should follow her. It's really cute. <laughs> Thanks, one fine cat. And yes, I am still working on our C2E2 recap podcast. That, that special mm -hmm. might be up before this episode, depending on how much time I get to edit tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It might go up shortly after this episode, yeah. depending on how much time I don't have. There's been... <laughs> it's been stuff. It's one of those things you're doing in between other things. It, it gets put on the back burner because other things have deadlines. Yes. And it's a bonus thing that doesn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's It'll coming. I'm yeah. sorry. Peter writes in with a few favorite assassins. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, first, Roger de Kirkpatrick of Scotland, a, an ally of Robert Bruce. Uh, when Robert Bruce and John Coman had their last meeting, some harsh words were exchanged, and Bruce stabbed Coman, which was pretty bad, but stabbed him in a church, which means 
expulsion, excommunication. You're, you're cast out of the community of God. Uh, so he rushed out of the church, confessing that he had killed Coleman and fled. Kirkpatrick responded with, wait, let me, let me make sure. He went in and killed Coleman uh, as he was in the process of dying so that he got all that heat uh, instead of Bruce. Nice. That's a pal. Yeah. Another famous assassin from Scotland was James Hal- was James Hamilton, a supporter of Mary Tudor, who killed James Stewart. Uh, not the actual king, a different James Stewart, one of his uh, uh, illegitimate sons. Mm-hmm. In uh, Peter's hometown of Linlithgow, uh, which was the first recorded political assassination to use a gun. Oh. Very American of you. Yes. According to Charles J. Gateau. Yes. Uh, also, the Chichia ETA assassination team, who in 1973 dug a tunnel under a road used by uh, Spanish Prime Minister Luis Carrero Blanco in Franco's Spain, packed it with explosives, and on the 20th of December blew him up so hard, his car flew over a five-story building and onto the other Dang. side. I'm pretty sure he didn't make it. Nope. Probably not. Thanks, Peter. Uh, William's answering a few prompts. First favorite pie is barbecue chicken pie, uh, specifically the one their girlfriend makes. I have never heard of barbecue chicken pie. Mm-hmm. I have questions about, is it just barbecue sauce and chicken inside pie crust? Or are there other things? I need to know. <laughs> yeah, my, my first thought is it's like a, a chicken bao, but instead of like squishy dumpling dough... It is pie crust. I don't know. You're thinking like a hand pie kind of thing. Yeah. My brain automatically goes to like consistency of chicken pot pie where it's more soupy, but it's just like chicken and a whole lot it's of barbecue floating sauce. floating in barbecue. That sounds very messy. That's just where my brain goes. I'm like, that can't be it. There's got to be more to it. So follow up with that, please. Uh, favorite Australian is also uh, Garth Nix. Science fiction fantasy author. Uh, that is pretty unknown outside of Australia. Which is undeserved in William's mm. book. Yes. Uh, favorite assassin is Corvo Otano uh, from Dishonored. Is that... That's a video game. Game? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I really don't play video games. <laughs> and uh, William also uh, g- gives a little... Uh, some Some pronunciation tips for Australian uh-huh, uh-huh. names. I'm we, not even getting the English right these days. Gosh. Apparently, we need to be lazier uh-huh. with pronouncing them. We're, we're just too many syllables and vowels are being pronounced. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Also, William successfully uh, guessed that this episode would be about American presidents who were assassinated. So well, William got close. Yeah. It's about the people that did the assassinate. Yeah, I, I feel like it counts. William McKinley's not in the title of this episode. But we talk about him. Well, you've got to. I, I feel like it counts. Eh, and thank you, William. Thanks, William. Alex and Faye write in again. As for favorite serial killers, Faye's is keeping it down with the classic Brit, Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Alex's is the story of the, the spate of murders in Bucharest uh, that were all united by, by bite marks found on the victims. 
Uh, a man was arrested for killing four women and attacking more than 10 others, and he was sentenced to death and executed by firing squad. A year later, his father died in suspicious circumstances, and, and then it came to light that he had also been a serial killer in the 40s, killing four women himself. And this took place in the 70s. I guess we were just due for the grandchild to to be yeah. killing people in Bucharest, I, I and I I hope that didn't happen. Yeah. As for live action Disney films, Faye's gonna gonna stick to Mary Poppins. It's a good one. It's great. So good. Wonderful cast. Wonderful cast. Ah, oh, Julie, you're killing me. Uh, and Alex's is the Black Hole, Disney's stab at space opera, uh, trying to ride that Star Wars wave. And the robot designs are just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. As for favorite assassins, Faye posits that James Bond is less of a spy and more of an assassin because he does a lot more shooting rather than, you know, going places and, and collecting information. I support this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and if would-be assassins count, then uh, Alex is going to, to keep up with their British theme. For, with Guy Fox, the uh, figurehead slash scapegoat of the 1605 plot to blow up Parliament. But we just want to say congratulations to Alex and Faye. They are very near the, the wedding day. Yeah. Congratulations. I just feel like we've been like following along on this whole journey. A little bit, a little bit. And as, as a gift, which is the opposite way, because they gave us a gift, picture their cat friend. Yeah. <laughs> good cat so thank you so much for writing in and thanks to everybody for writing us mm-hmm. if you would like to send us an email those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com and we love things like show suggestions like Kevin gave us yeah or comments or corrections or, or just stories you want to tell and of course our, our prompts and animal pictures and more than anything <laughs> we love animal pictures baby pictures are also fine <laughs> So, darling, do we have a prompt? The prompt for next week. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Ooh. We're going to get some heated responses. Yeah. It's going to get spicy in our inbox. It's going to get very controversial because of the different names of cookies. <laughs> well, that's something to, to whet some appetites. Anyway, those emails can go, too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also plenty of other ways to get in touch with us. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At History Honeys. And our dog is on Instagram at Moki underscore the dog. Uh-huh. But while you're out there, why not give us a rating and review? We really would love it. We really would appreciate it. On Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, wherever else you found us, it does a great deal to, to help our show grow and, yeah. and develop. And you can also tell a friend. Pass on the word mm-hmm. to other people. Let them know about the fun times we have here together. <laughs> sometimes yeah. talking about dead people, sometimes talking about It's a history show. There's movies. always dead people. Okay, sometimes talking about assassinations or murder or insurance fraud or just pass it on. Once again, tonight is the night that we've scheduled for another Breakfast Cult stream with Roll20 Presents. So again, that's uh, twitch.tv slash uh, Roll20app. Uh, we'll be tweeting out links to that. If you missed it live, it's all up uh, recorded for posterity. So you can follow along or catch up if you missed the first few. Yeah. Yeah. I hope to see folks there. Yeah. 
So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.